0: Good evening, guys. Um, You can just imagine that there's an imaginary board here. Um, David, do you know where it is? That would be really helpful um, to get the same pictures from last week. Uh, Welcome to uh, all of you, uh, especially to those who are joining us for the very first time this evening. My name is Reggie. Uh, We are glad that you've decided to join us here tonight. Now, you find us on our second installment of a series called Beautiful Ashes. Uh, Now, you may be wondering why the name Beautiful Ashes. Uh, First, let me start off by saying what you heard from Simba is that the shape of the book of the prophets, the shape of this very book as well, Amos, is that it moves from death to life. God actually tells his people he's going to take them through death before he brings them into life or before he brings life to them. And one of the phrases that I used last week is that in Amos chapter 8, Amos talks about them moving from bitterness. And then in chapter 9, he says, they move to, who remembers that? Come on now. They move from bitterness to, they move from bitterness to sweet wine. Sweet, don't you remember the rosé? They move from bitterness to sweet wine. This is where God will move them from, from bitterness. He'll take them through that uh, to a time of sweetness as well. And this very phrase is actually taken from Isaiah, where Isaiah says, God will take his people from ashes to beauty, or he will bring out beauty from ashes. Hence the title of the series, uh, Beautiful Ashes. And last week, the sermon focused on an unrelenting God, a God who sees his creation, uh, people from the nations. And even Judah and Israel who act in ways to watch, towards each other that are inhumane. And God says it so clearly because of the way they treat each other. He's going to hold all people accountable. And if you remember anything last week, I said that is a great thing. It is a great thing to have a God who holds people to account. Because that, that shows us that, that that is a loving God. I said last week, God judges because he loves. He loves his creation, which is why He would not let it spiral into chaos. Today's sermon is Listen. Uh, That's the title of the sermon. I'm sure you would have guessed from the very questions we did as well. But now let me pray for us and then I'll read the passage. Actually, let me read the passage first, then I'll pray for us. And we'll come to God's word. If you can have Amos before you, Amos chapter 3 and 4, and I will read for us. Listen to the reading of God's word. Hear this, that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to the city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds of Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great Talmuds within her and, and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery In their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion, from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the Lord of Israel who dwell so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on that day I will punish Israel for her transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter houses along with the summer houses, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. Chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring, bring that we may drink. The Lord has sown by, by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you, when they, shall, when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Haman. Come to Bethel and transgress; to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for you for for so you love to do, O people of Israel. I gave you the cleanness of teeth in all of your in all of your cities and lack of bread in all of your places. Yet you did not return to me. I also withheld rain from you when there was yet when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would not send rain on one city and send no rain. I'll send rain on the one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the other field on which and another field on which it would not rain would wither so two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied yet you did not return to me i strike you down with blight and mildew your many gardens and your your vineyards your your fig trees and your olive trees the locust devoured yet you did not return to me i sent you among i sent among you a pestilent after the men of Egypt, I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And, may, and I, made a stench of, I made a stench of your camp. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yes, yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of uh, the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, that I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to men what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and threads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we do pray that has come to your word today, and that it's seeing how you bring this message of judgment to your people who did not listen, and that this message would be a great message of warning to us so that we would begin in each and every day of, of our lives to listen to you and to obey you by living for you wherever you have placed us. And this we do pray In Jesus' name, amen. One of the signs that a relationship is probably not going well is when one of the parties in the relationship says, I feel like I've not been listened to or I feel unheard. Now that reminds you of the questions that we did a little bit earlier. Now you notice I first used the word probably. I used the word probably because you and I actually have times when we tend to zone off or tune off when we are talking with someone. Uh, we tend to zone off to another place as we are talking to them, or as they are talking to us, rather. Now, among our friends, we call this very moment the David moment. Because of how often David does that when you talk to him. We call it the David moment. But, but all of us uh, do this. All of us tune out, we zone out when someone is talking to us. That there are times when we do that. And when the person turns to you and asks you, are you even listening to me? They're usually one one of two things that you do. One, you have the look on your face that says, are you talking to me? (laughs) Say what? what? (laughs) Or you fake it. You act like you heard what they said. But afterwards, the person can tell by your behavior or lack of it that you did not hear them, that you were not listening. But there are other times when this becomes a normal pattern in a relationship, when the other person definitely feels unheard for most of the relationship. And that's concerning, when the other person feels as though they're not heard. Now, I don't know if you've been there. Perhaps you know someone who's been there, who's felt that. Now, let me say, I'm not about to give you relationship advice from the book of Amos. It would be interesting if you did that. If you you want some relationship advice, you can come to my household. Uh, You can make an appointment to come to my house. My wife has great wisdom, so she'll help you out. You can come to our house if you want that. But since we are talking about listening, there's something interesting about this word here, listen, that is used in this passage. See, the word listen as a video in the Bible project. The Bible projects are brilliant. David at one point said he agrees with 80% of what they do. I'm still trying to figure out what the 20 that he doesn't agree with is. (laughs) But anyway, the Bible Project, I love them. I love what they do. And they've got a video where they explain what this word, listen, is in a video called Shema. Because you see the word, listen, as you find in this passage here, is the very same word that is used in Deuteronomy 6, and in a number of passages in the Bible, it's the word Shema. And if you know anything about the word Shema, you would know that the Shema was a prayer that the Jewish people prayed in the morning and in the evening. And you see, when they prayed this prayer, they were meant to remind themselves or remind each other to listen to God. They were meant to do that, to remind themselves to listen to God. Listen to the words from this prayer, which is a centerpiece of actually Moses' last speech as he speaks to the Israelites before they go down into the promised land. Deuteronomy 6 reads as follows. Hear, or listen, or shema, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The name of the prayer, as you can see, comes from the very first word, the Shema. The people, as they prayed it, were meant to remind themselves to listen to God. But, but this word Shema, which is a very common word in the Hebrew Bible, also has more going for it. There's a lot more that we can say about this word. It has a lot more than just hearing sound waves coming into your ear. See, the word could also mean pay attention to. Pay attention to what is being said. Pay attention to God. Or respond to what you are hearing. And actually, when you read uh, Exodus 19 verse 5, which we will come back to a little bit later, you realize there that that's what God is saying to the people. But let me just backtrack before. When the people in the Psalms pray to God and say to God, listen to us, God. What they're asking for God to do is not simply hear them. They're asking God to do something. They're asking God to act. And in Exodus 19 verse 5, you see a very similar thing. That as God says to his people, if you shema me, if you listen to me, if you listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. What he's calling them to do there is not just to hear, but to do something. They are meant to keep his word. And so very often you would see in Bible translations that the word shema that you find in Exodus 19 is often translated as obey. In Exodus 19, you'll find this word being used twice to say, listen closely or indeed listen, obey what God is saying. So I hope you can see already that this word, Shema, has more than to do with just hearing or having sound waves going into your ear. It means you should carry out whatever the other person has said. You should do something. And as we come to this passage, we will see something of that. But before that, although the Israelites prayed this prayer each morning, they woke up and said to themselves, we should listen to God. If you read their story all throughout the Old Testament, you would realize that they did not. They did not listen to God. They did not obey him. They did not carry out his words. And so God sends a number of prophets, especially at this time. Prophets who, interestingly, uh, use very similar words to the word Shema, or the idea of listening. Let me just give you a few prophets that come right after Amos. There's a prophet called Isaiah and a prophet called Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Actually, let me say them in order. Isaiah, Jeremiah, then Ezekiel. These three prophets all use the very same kind of phrase to explain the Israelites and the kind of lives that they lived. They say, these people, actually let me change that. This is what Jeremiah and Ezekiel say. These senseless, foolish people have ears, but they do not listen. They do not hear. They have ears. But they do not listen. And then a little bit later, you will see some other prophets, like Amos now, that they take this very same phrase from Deuteronomy and use it differently to show the people a different kind of message that God is bringing. See, in Jeremiah 17 and Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah says to the people in the southern kingdom, he says, Hear, O kings, officials, and people of Judah. And straight after that, he doesn't tell them of how they should love God, but he tells them of a message of judgment. It tells them of a warning that has come. They use the very same kind of phrasing, but to tell them now of a different message, a message of judgment. And if you would notice with me, if you page to Amos, you would notice that at the beginning of chapter 3, this is the very same phrase that you find. Hear, O people of Israel. Listen, O people of Israel. Chapter 4, very same thing, but it says, listen, you cows of Bashan. Chapter 5, listen, O house of Israel. Very same phrase, but this time it's used in the two chapters, three and four, to bring a different kind of message. So God is saying to his people, his people who are his family, he's saying to them, they have not listened to him, they have not lived as he has called them to. They have showed no fear for him. And even when he has sent them warnings, when they have not been listening to him, they have not returned. He's saying to his family, you have no fear of me. And even when I give you warnings, you decide not to return to me. Now, I hope you can realize if you look down on your notes, those are our three points for today. Family, fear, and return. Family, fear, and return. Let's go to our very first point, which is family. And I'll read the passage in the way that I just explained it to us. Family, we'll look at verse 1 and 2 as you see in your notes there. This is how the passage reads. Hear, O people of Israel, and this word that the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now we'll see here why Amos spends quite a lot of time Explaining why God is bringing his message of judgment to his people. We'll see it especially in this little name or little word, family. The Israelites are called God's family. The kind of language that we use here at church is they are a redeemed family. We are a redeemed family. Now I want you to see what God has redeemed the Israelites from. Go to the passage with me, verse 1. Notice that God has redeemed them from oppression. Look at verse 1 once again. God has redeemed them from oppression. He has redeemed them from the land. He's brought them out from the land of Egypt, where they were slaves, where they were denied justice, where they were mistreated, where, if I use the language from last week, where they were de-imaged or denied the dignity of image bearers, people who are made in the very image of God. And here Amos uses that very event, that Exodus, that Exodus event, that if you've if if you've heard the sermons we've done in the morning on the Psalms and in Exodus, that, that this very event here is the pinning, is the pinnacle of God's redemption in the Old Testament. When God's people are reminded of God's salvation for them, they are always pointed back to the Exodus, where God redeemed them from slavery, where God redeemed them from oppression. Now, the irony in this passage is that, or the irony in Amos that you see is that the very same family whom God redeemed from oppression are now the culprits, the perpetrators of oppression themselves. They've oppressed the needy and the poor, as we said last week. And you know what else they've done? They've told the Nazarites, the Nazarites are people who took a vow to follow God by not eating certain kinds of food or drinking certain kinds of things. They told them, here, drink wine. And they told the prophets who spoke for God that they should zip it. So you see how they've oppressed the people of God. These very people who were saved by God from oppression are they themselves carriers of oppression or perpetrators, rather, of oppression. In verse 2, look at Amos reminding them yet again uh, about them being a redeemed family. Him elaborating on that. Listen to what he says there. In verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. This is what God says. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God is not saying that he's, not, he's only known the Israelites, uh, that he has no knowledge of other people. I mean, we know that. We saw it last week when we looked at chapter 1 and 2. That God knows what happens in the nations. He knows the crimes that they do. And we know that God will hold them to account. So when he says, I've known you, he must not be talking about that. So what is he saying? Well, other translations put, put it this way. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. You only have I set apart, have I set aside of all the families of the earth. Now, I think you and I know a lot about setting aside or setting apart something. Think about Krispy Kreme. Now, I love Krispy Kreme. They have these donuts. um, If you get the green or the red, the green, if you get, is it the Tasty Treat and what's the other one? It's the Tasty Treat and a different one. But the red one is the indulgent. But anyway, with those boxes, you buy the box of three, you always find one donut. You always find one donut that is unique. I mean, the other two will look a little bit uh, different. But there's one, which is often in the middle, that is very unique, that is set apart, that is different. And you can see it as you look at it. God chooses these people. He sets them apart as that donut. Okay, let's try a different illustration. Let's try a different translation or illustration. A man decides there's a lady that he likes. And eventually he decides, I want to marry this woman. As he stands on the altar, he has set her aside, only her, to be his for the rest of his life. So she has a unique position in his life. He has set her aside. Okay, let, let's try another illustration. Since we're using the language of family in this passage, actually, let me, let me just say a few things. There are a few people who do a shotgun technique, and, and I wonder how they're setting people apart. But anyway. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> But since the passage talks about language of family, let's talk about family, about adoption. See, in the Bible, the Israelites are often referred to as the son of God. God adopts the Israelites into his family. In the same way as someone goes out to adopt a child, they take a particular child and bring them into his family. That's exactly what God does with the Israelites. He sets them apart. He brings them to use them for his purpose. Now, we'll chat about his purpose by going back to Exodus 19 verse 5 and verse 6. Let me read it for you. Listen to this. If you shema or listen to me and fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world or the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'm not sure if you remember that kind of language from the series in Genesis that we did with David. But David reminded us that, uh, he told us rather, that God takes Adam and Eve and and will set them apart in the same way as kings and priests to take the life of Eden into the rest of the world. God chooses Israel for that very same purpose, so that they will be a light to the nations. So that in the way that they live, they could draw the nations to God. They are meant to be unique. They are meant to live differently. They are meant to follow the, the, the voice of God. They are meant to, if we use again the language of adoption, they are meant to carry the family name. They are meant to live in the way that God has called them out to, uh, to live. They are meant to stick out. But as you read through chapter 1 and 2, as you read through the history of the Israelites, you realize that they don't stick out, that they're actually like the nations. The very same nations that uh, they look at and think that God should subjugate them, they act like those very nations. They are like those very nations. They are not the salt and light they were called to be to the nations. Rather, their lives continue to spread the same darkness that you find in the nations. Their lives were not salty. They were not salty people. And by that, I don't mean they were mean people. No, no, they were not salty people in the sense that they did not preserve or bring the flavor of God's values to the people around them. See, in ancient Rome... What would often happen, now Rome comes a little bit later. In ancient Rome, what would happen is when a soldier was done working, they would often be paid with salt. If a soldier did not work, then this is a phrase that would often be used of them. They were not worth his salt. So the soldier was not worth his salt. And if you go to the New Testament, you see in the New Testament that Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, what should happen? Useless and trampled upon. And this is what God says through Amos to his people. Because they've not lived in the way he had called them to. He had set them apart for his purpose, to be a light to the nations, to be salt to the nations, to actually draw the nations to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But because they've not listened to him, they've not obeyed him, the relationship isn't going well. They will be trampled upon. God will bring death. If we use the language of uh, the series, God will turn them to ashes. Now, redeemed family, I know we live post-Jesus, but if you remember anything I said last week, Hebrews 12 tells us that God is a Father who loves us. If He sees that we are straying away from Him, disciplines us to bring us back to Him. So here's my question. Are you salt and light where God has placed you? Are we salt and light as a church? in this neighborhood that God has placed us. That's the first point. God has made us his family, his redeemed family, so that we could be servants on mission. Are we servants on mission to the world? Our second point is fear. And for the second point, which will be uh, the longest, we'll look at uh, chapter 3, verse 3, to chapter 4, verse 5, as you see there in front of you. See, in chapter 1, Verse 2, I'll start there as we talk about the second point, fear. Uh, Amos begins chapter 1, verse 2 in this way. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And pastures of the shepherds moan, and the top of, of Carmel, Mount Carmel withers. Now when you come to chapter 3, you realize that a very similar phrase is used in verse 7 actually let's go its verse 8 the lord has roared who will not fear the lord has spoken who can but prophesy now when it speaks of the of god or, the, or god is uh, is portrayed as the lion here as he's portrayed as a lion who roars we, we we are not meant to think of that very great song that became a national anthem in south africa lion of Judah, how <laughs> you do me now, my, my suture isn't that great, but I know how you do my means. Let the lion roar. I mean, we sang those, that song with joy, great joy, but that's not the kind of roaring that you see here. The kind of roaring that you see here makes shepherds moan, makes Mount Carmel wither. It makes Amos, who stands before God, fear. Fear in the sense that he trembles and is in awe and worships God. I mean, I don't know if you've seen videos probably have on YouTube, videos of a lion chasing a car. Yeah, I mean, in the car you'll find people, of course. There'll be people, of course. Uh, go look it up. you find a few videos. There's one actually in Kruger Park and one in Zimbabwe where uh, a lion was chasing a car because there were people there. Uh, but anyway, in this video, what you can see in the people's faces is both the emotion of terror and awe. When the lion roars... Those are the kind of emotions that are are meant to be a reason within the people of God. And Amos here clearly tells us that God has spoken. And the word that God has spoken is a message of judgment. Who can but fear and speak? And that's what he does. He prophesies. He speaks. He has been sent by God to speak. And here's the interesting thing. The way that Amos responds here is the opposite of the people. See, the people do not fear God. You look at their, their worship. And you look at their lifestyle or behavior, you can see so clearly that they do not fear God. They have no love for God and love for neighbor, as we've seen last week. See, the reason why they continue to treat God and others in the way that they have is because they do not fear him. They do not fear God. They do not tremble before him or stand in awe or revere him. And Amos here will show them that this is the reason why God is bringing judgment to his redeemed family. God wouldn't do anything without reason. He would not bring judgment to his people without reason. And so Amos here breaks into a series of rhetorical questions. I hope you can see them from verse 3 to verse 6. Nice rhetorical questions. But if you read them, the answer to all of them is no. Let's go through the verses. Look at that. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? No. They'll agree on a destination. And usually at this time, because it was dangerous to walk, people would meet together and decide the destination they would walk and decide when they would rest as well. And it's meant to point them in one sense here to how they are not walking with God. Does a lion roar in the forest or thicket when he has no prey? Does a lion, young lion cry out from his den if he has, he has taken nothing? Again, the hungry lion... Will not draw, But the lion who's captured his prey, and the prey here is the Israelite, will draw. So again, the answer is no. You read the next one. Does a bird get trapped if there's not been a snare? No. Does a a snare spring up when there's been nothing to catch? No. Do trumpets blow, uh, uh, trumpets blown? At this time, trumpets were blown either for a sign of victory or to alert people that an enemy was coming. Is a a trumpet blown and the people do not fear? No. The answer is no to all of them. And Amos uses these questions to show them that God would not do, would not bring judgment to them without reason. It's because the people, God's people, have not feared him. See, God isn't some vindictive and mean-spirited being who's sitting in heaven just waiting to judge people for the fun of it. He's not. He doesn't do anything without reason. God is not like that being was portrayed in Bruce Almighty, which is actually one of my favorite movies. What where, where Jim Carrey says, smite me, almighty smiter. I don't know if you know that very scene. God is not that being that you see then. See, God isn't sitting in heaven waiting to smite all, smote, smite, smote people. Now, if you pick that up, that's a reference from Moena. Okay, but anyway, David says I like talking about movies. And I think I do. I like talking about movies a lot. So let me talk about one more movie. Here's another one. The movie Exodus, God and Kings. In that movie, God is portrayed as a little boy who cannot control his temper. 11-year-old boy who just loses his temper. That's not the kind of God we see in the Bible. God does not turn out to his people or turn out to people in anger unless there is reason. See, unless there is a reason, God would not do it. And that's what we see in this passage here. In Amos 3 to 6, God tells his people that, Amos tells these people that God would not bring judgment to them without reason. Now here's the interesting thing as you continue reading. Amos continues to rub salt onto a wound. He tells them in verse 9 and 10 that God will actually bring their fiercest enemies. Ashdod is the Philistines. And when it says the land of Egypt, these are two of their fiercest enemies. If I had the boat here, I would show you. Egypt is a little bit lower, and Philistine as well is just a little bit lower than Judah. God will bring these two enemies that they've had battle with for a while. And you know what God will do? He will come to bring them to the mountains of Samaria so that they could see how his people cannot tell their left to their right hand. How his people do not know the right thing to do. See, What happens here is the opposite of what the Israelites were meant to do. They were meant to be salt and light to the nations. But God calls the nations to come and see their darkness, their unrighteousness, and their wickedness. That's what God calls the nations to come here to see. And so as the nations watch this, as they watch the judgment of God, even in the exile, there will be no doubt that God is just in what he has done in turning his people to ashes. Notice chapter 3, verse 11, that God will bring nations to plunder them. God will bring an adversary to plunder them. And here is a picture of the exile. But in verse 12, we'll see, even if God decides to rescue them, it will be like a shepherd who rescues a sheep that has been torn apart by the lion or by a jackal. And there's only two legs left. This, this gives you a bit of a picture of, of what happens a bit later. It gives you a picture that out of his whole family, God brings out the remnant. See, to bring beauty, God destroys his people, makes them ashes to bring beauty from a few. And that's what he does. He brings a remnant who returns from exile. We did a book in, uh, in Haggai a few years ago uh, to look at that very thing. So I'd encourage you to go look at that. See, the Israelites were clear that they did not want to listen to the message from Amos. They did not want to listen from from the message from Amos for two reasons. One, they thought things were going well. They thought their worship was going well. And they thought things financially or economically were going well because they were prospering. So they thought, I mean, we're comfortable. So it it must be that God is blessing us. It must be that things are going well with us and God. But Amos says to them, God isn't happy with your worship or prosperity. Because in both of them, you show that you do not fear him. Let me give you a picture of their worship as we come to verse 12 onwards, verse 13 onwards rather. See, their worship, you can see in their worship that they do not listen. I'll take you 200 years back before this. 200 years back before this is when the kingdom was still united. God... Told, uh, raised up a man called Jeroboam, and this man called Jeroboam, God raised up to take the ten tribes to the north to form a new nation, Israel, where the two tribes got left uh, in Judah. And you guys remember what I said last week, it is because of David and Solomon's sin and Rehoboam's foolishness that he continued bringing taxes upon the people when he was told not to. That's so God divides the kingdom and raises up this man called Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is actually not just endorsed by the people, but he's endorsed by God. God says he will bless him. God says he will bless the work, his work. Despite the kingdom still being in Judah, God will bless Jeroboam. But one of the things Jeroboam does is, is it's strange. See, see, so what Jeroboam does is, because he realizes that people, whenever people will travel to the south, the south is where Jerusalem was, where the people worshipped God. He realized that if people traveled to the south quite a lot, what would happen is, is they might change their allegiance from him to the king in the south. So what he decides to do is to erect two, some people say three, places of worship. What you see in the passage is Bethel and Gilgal, some say there's another place called Den where he erects places of worship so that the people would not have to go far. So that they would not have to travel all the way to Jerusalem to worship. They can stay here. But his motive isn't pure. His motive is not because he doesn't want the people to travel. It's because of political power. He wants to keep political power. And so he gets these two places. Gilgal. A very special place. The Israelites cross the Red Sea. And after they've crossed the Red Sea, they get to a place, this place called Gilgal. And God tells them there they should make an altar. An altar to praise him, to thank him for what he had done for them. Bethel. don't know if any of you remember the story around Bethel. About a man who wrestles with God. Jacob. Who says to God, I will not let you go until you bless me. And after he calls that place house of God. So he comes up with two places where he thinks, oh man, these, these make sense. You can see God's power in these places and God's redemption. It makes sense to build something in Gilgal and something in Bethel so that the people would not travel to the south. But what he does in, in 1 Kings 12 is shocking. He, he builds up two golden calves, one for Bethel and one for Gilgal. And as you're sitting there, you're thinking, you're thinking to yourself, as you read through the passage, you're probably smacking your head and thinking, come on. Come on, I'm sure you know that this story does not end well. Have you heard of Aaron? Haven't you heard of Aaron? I'm sure you've heard of Aaron. You've heard about his story. Surely you know this does not end well. But that's what he does. Moreover, he builds temples or altars for pagan gods. A pagan god called Baal. This is what he does. This is the guy God promised he would bless. And now he has become, or he became, a stain and a stench in the history of the northern kingdom. Such that he was regarded as one of their worst kings. As bad as Manasseh, who comes a little bit later, but in the southern kingdom. And now in our passage in Amos, the guy who is king now is Jeroboam the second. And he's said to be like the the old one. They're part of the same WhatsApp group. Now I'm glad a lot of people have not left WhatsApp. Same telegram group, doesn't work? (laughs) signal group they're part of the same WhatsApp group they are the same they're not so different and the people of God there who worship God aren't so different either they are like their leaders their king themselves see they want to worship God on their own terms they do not fear him they want to decide when and how to worship God and so God says I will come and destroy your altars now with prosperity. The reign of Jeroboam II is actually considered to be one of the most successful economically in the northern kingdom. Notice in the passage that we are told about summer and winter houses. The, the, the nice houses, ivory. The, these guys have nice houses. They've got a beach house, a house in Centin. They're doing well economically. And so when they hear the, the message from Amos, it seems strange that he would tell them of that when they are doing so well. They can drink whatever they want. In terms of quality and quantity. And notice that Amos says God isn't pleased with their prosperity. Notice the kind of language he uses. Chapter 4 verse 1. Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands or lords, bring that we may drink. So it seems that the woman here told their husbands, who would have been either army leaders or people who had authority in Israel, go and oppress the poor more so that we can drink. Go and oppress the poor more so that we may drink. So in one sense, they grazed or fed on the poor as a cow feeds on grass. They chewed them. Go on and mistreat the poor so that we may be benefactors of it. So Although when you come to the passage, you realize they're not perpetrators of injustice. They're actually benefactors of injustice. And cheerleaders of it as well. And God holds them just as accountable as everyone else here. We should make us to think about the kind of language when we use about people who benefit from injustice. Something to think about. And in the next verses, God then mocks these people. He mocks his people. Notice the sarcasm from chapter four, verse four. He says, Come to Bethel, your place of worship and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is livened. Livened. God asked for unleavened bread, if you remember, in, in the past, of that which is livened, and proclaim free will offerings, publish them. For you, for so you love to do, for so you love to do, O oh people of Israel. This passage is riddled with sarcasm. God says, Come, and that's what you want to do. You love sin, you love rebelling against me. So, so come to your places of worship and rebel. Come to your places of worship and rebel. But see, God will not let them continue in that way. He will hold them to account. Come and do and worship God in the way that you want. But God will bring them to account. Redeemed family, let me ask you this. Does the McDonald's theme song play in the background whenever you and I fail to love God and our neighbor in the way that we are meant to do? Does the McDonald's theme song play in the background when you and I choose sin instead of God, when we choose rebellion instead of God? I'm loving it. I think most of the time he does. That's how much we are attached to our sin. Attached to rebelling against God. We love sin so much because we have no fear of God. We do not listen to him. And Paul in Romans says, all who act in that way, Romans 1, all who choose sin instead of God, at the very end God says, oh, that's what you want. Okay, yeah. He hands us over to our very sin. Now, though, I know you're waiting for that moment. Reggie, is there any Jesus today? Are we going to get that Jesus relief at some point? Now, although Jesus has taken our judgment, you and I still bear the consequences of our sin now, don't we? We do. We do. And they have no fear of God. Is there a fear of God, a trembling before God with us? And awe oh, of him. Last point is return. And for return, we will look at verse 6 to verse verse 13, the end of the chapter there. Now, I'm sure as you look at that very word, return, you can find it in the passage. I'm sure you can see it. You can see that there's a repeated phrase there. And here's the repeated phrase, verse 6. Yes, you did not return to me. Verse 8, yes, you did not return to me. Verse 9, yes, you did not return to me. Verse 10, same thing. Verse 11, same thing. I think we get the point. The people of God did not return to him. The Israelites did not return to him. And even after God sent warnings to them, he sent them warnings of his impending judgment so that they would return to him. But they did not listen. Because they did not fear him. Notice the kind of warnings God sent. Verse 6. God sent them famine. When you see cleanness of teeth and lack of bread, it's talking about famine. Verse 7. God sent, or withheld rather, rain for three months before the harvest. He sent a drought. Did not listen to him. The drought actually affected them as well. Such that people from one or two cities went somewhere else to find water and were not satisfied. But they did not return. Blight, locusts, you see language that sounds like uh, the plagues from Egypt, yet they did not return. Contagious diseases, he overthrew their cities, they did not return. And each of these echoes to different stories in the Bible, actually. And you see here that God says, I've sent you warnings, but you did not return. And so, eventually, he says there, as we see Amos pointing out to us, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to do battle with God, because you've decided you don't want to listen to him. Now, depending on when the first message that Amos said in chapter one and two was, we're not giving dating in the book of Amos like the book of Haggai. If they would have heard that message and this message comes at a later point, then they did not listen to Amos either. They chose not to listen. Such that a little bit later in Amos, the king of the northern kingdom tells Amos, go back to the south, go back home. We could tell that you are suspicious, that you did not come here to bring good news. Go back home. This is what the king says. But as we come to an end, this is the question we've got to ask. Why does God send them warnings? Why does he send them warnings? Now I'm convinced that we need to conclude by realizing that God sends them warnings because he loves his people and wants his people to return. He wants to give his people the opportunity to return. He wants them to turn back to him. He wants them to return. God sends warnings because he is merciful. He is loving and kind. He's a kind God who's patient with his family, who's patient with all people, because he does not want us, he does not want them to perish. Tim Mackey of the same Bible project actually says this. As you read through the Bible, and you look at the descriptions of God, Looking at two words, love and anger, you will notice that the way that God's love is described is as abounding. God's love abounds, but God is described as slow to anger. Exodus, Numbers, Nehemiah, the Psalms, a number of times, Joel, Jonah, God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love, and he's slow to anger. And even Peter in the New Testament, when he comes onto the scene and tells us of God's patience, where he says, We must not think it's the kind of patience we think it is. He still tells slowness, rather. We should not think it's the kind of slowness we think it is. He still tells us that God is patient. Because he does not want any to perish. See, God sends warnings. So as to get people to return to him. And tonight, although we are redeemed, we have been saved through what Jesus has done. Although God has taken all the judgment we deserved in Jesus. God, in the very same way, does still send us warnings in our lives today. And if you are part of his redeemed family and have not been listening to him and you have chosen sin, you have chosen to rebel against him and you love it, here is an opportunity today to return. To return to this God who is abounding in love and slow to anger. If you're not a Christian here today and you're not part of his redeemed family, here's what God wants you to hear. There is judgment that you would face, but Jesus has taken all of that judgment. So you can choose to accept his offer. Actually, if you accept Jesus today, God sets you apart. God chooses you. God God adopts you into his family. And from this point on, would you consider to begin to listen to him, to obey him, and to live for him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are uh, in awe of your abounding love and the very fact that you are slow to anger. But Lord, would you help us to not think your slowness to anger means you will not discipline and that you will not punish. Help us to see that. So that as your people whom you have redeemed through Jesus, as your people whom Jesus has taken all of our punishment, we would begin to live for you. We would begin to choose you instead of sin. That we would listen to you, that we would shema you and your voice fully instead of living a life of sin. Lord, would you help us that this would become so clear in the way that we not just love you, but love those around us. May they see that we are truly salt and light. May we become that to our family, to our colleagues, and even the people who stay around. And Lord, for any who has not turned to you today, would you help them to see the great offer to turn to you, The great offer that is found in Jesus who has taken uh, their judgment uh, upon him. So would you cause them to come to you so that they would become your treasured possession. That you would use to expand your kingdom to the world. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.